hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. Chats, the original comedy soundcast featuring interviews from comedy... Soundcasts. That's right, comedians, comedian soundcasters, miscreants, weirdos, and other showbiz folk. And now, filling in for host Tyson Saner, here is Suckatash executive producer, Ma. Kershon! Thank you, Bill Haywatt. It is I. Substitute host, executive producer, and clippable discount coupon, Mark Hershon, filling in for regular host and spanking new parent, Tyson Saner. Well, he's not literally spanking his newborn baby. That kind of thing is frowned upon in modern society. But that is to say... Since I last spoke to you in previous Epi 186, Tyson and his lovely wife Laura have recently welcomed their new son into the world. His name is Gareth Franklin Saner, and Tyson informs me that he was named after the Goblin King from the movie Labyrinth, as portrayed by David Bowie. Interesting. Uh, I didn't even know that Tyson was related to the Goblin King. I even have a picture of the littlest Saner, yes, While I obviously can't show it to you via this audio medium, you can see young Master Jareth featured at the top of the blog entry for this episode at our home site, SuckatashShow.com. And the Oz are free. As to when Tyson will be back in front of the Suckatash microphone, he's predicting sometime in early March. The soundcasting world can get a little wiggly when it comes to timelines and schedules once you have a baby. But... Until he returns, I shall endeavor to fill the void. And this time around, the void is being filled with this Succotash Chats Epi 187. My special guest is comedian, actor Frank Cronin, who I chatted up the other day via Skype as he had just completed a rather amazing 500-mile trek on foot from San Francisco to Los Angeles, which is kind of ironic because comics have been trying to make that jump from San Francisco market to Los Angeles for years. And usually it's just a Southwest flight away. It took him 41 days to make the trip, and it was not because he doesn't own a car, but because, rather, he wanted to raise awareness for the plight of the homeless in this country. And Frank was able to raise $20,000 for Homeless Healthcare Los Angeles, which is, uh, their website, by the way, is hhcla.org, and found the experience to be rather eye-opening and almost eye-closing as well, as you'll hear in our interview. More on that as we get to our chat in just a moment. This episode of Succotash is brought to you by Henderson's Scavenger Slacks and TrumpPoetry.com. But please remember that these are pretend sponsors only, and that Succotash is 100% listener-supported. You can help us to keep the mics cranked up, by clicking on the donate button at SuccotashShow.com and kicking some cash into the kitty. Or use the Amazon banner at the top of our site to do your online shopping and they'll give us a little taste off the top. Or you can purchase some merch from our Suckatashery, a spiffy hat perhaps, or a handy mug. And that helps us to offset production costs as well. If ponying up some scratch for your favorite comedy soundcast soundcast isn't in the cards, How about just a few moments of your time to get up to iTunes and grant us a five-star rating and a glowing review? Cost you nothing, but maybe just the thing to pull this show into the limelight so other listeners can find us. All right, with the business out of the way, 
And without further ado, here's my interview with Frank Cronin. On the phone, or on Skype, I should say, from Los Angeles, California, is Frank Cronin. Uh, old, uh, well, I guess you could say you're a friend of Succotash. You've uh, you've been sort of on the show before, and you're a friend of mine, so I'm going to say you're a friend of, Succ- of Succotash. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, I would consider myself a friend of yours, please God, unless I've something has happened that i don't know about no absolutely yeah. absolutely <laughs> and i would i'm happy to talk to frank cronin any day of the week but in particular he has just finished an amazing adventure that started uh, up here in our neck of the woods san francisco and culminated in los angeles and um uh it was really amazing because you could follow frank on uh, his instagram account on on uh, twitter and various other places, and uh, he went on this trek, which I'm going to let him outline exactly what was going on. But it was uh, kind of astounding, and I'm happy that you survived and are able to uh, to talk to us about it, Frank. Oh, thanks, Mark. Yeah, man, I started in Marin on the north side of the Golden Gate Bridge. It was, uh, yeah, pretty cool, man. And uh, I did it there because mainly I used to go there. Um, I used to travel to Marin a lot when I was a kid, you know, to visit cousins, and also it's. A, a national landmark, Golden Gate Bridge, kind of cool starting point. Yeah, right and down the I hill went, from the uh, Robin Williams Tunnel, too. Yeah, man, yeah. It's beautiful as well, you know. So I started there on the 15th of December, and then 41 days later, uh, I arrived at Dynasty Typewriter Comedy Club in L.A., and uh, the interim was really, really pretty tough. It was uh, 41 days of... Uh, close to you know 15 to 20 miles a day sometimes i i max i and um you know i was sleeping rough out every night because oh. it was a charity walk to raise money for homeless health care los angeles which uh yeah man we raised twenty thousand dollars wow uh, yeah along the way there was some serious adventures that's great well we'll put a uh, we'll, we'll put a link on the blog post for this episode because i'm sure they're still accepting donations one would assume yeah, and they're very grateful, man. The, the wonderful thing about these organizations is if you don't know how to help, you know, the homeless yourself or you don't know what to do with your money or what's the best way to help, they know exactly how to use your money. So, And they're a great organization. I got a tour of the facility before I yeah, took them on as the official charity for the walk, and they have a needle exchange center, harm reduction center, and they have a refresh center where... Thousands of people a week have showers and, and uh, can prepare for their appointments and reintegration back into society. So it's a really cool thing. Wow. You know, these guys don't mess around. Amazing. So get so to sort of get into the nuts and bolts of your, your trek, this was on foot, traveling uh, just overland, and as you said, uh, staying out rough, which would sort of translate for our listeners what that exactly means. What, is, what does out rough mean? All right, so... So in order to uh, get attention and raise money for a charity, you've got to have a hook. And uh, I thought <laughs> I thought sleeping out rough under the stars uh, with nothing but a sleeping bag and no tent uh, was a big enough challenge for people to pay attention and then tune in and then eventually make a donation, you know, because um, if you're putting yourself out there, then there's a real chance that people can kind of get behind you and back you. So that was the thought behind that. So I slept out uh, with nothing but a waterproof sleeping bag uh, every night and obviously doorways bus stops um 
people could invite me to their, you know, to sleep on their porch. I think I slept on three porches over the 41 days. Uh, yeah. But the, but the only rule is no walls, and uh, it's, it can't be like a it, it can't be a building, so to speak. So you could have a little bit of shelter over your head, but no walls. Wow, and, Were uh, you, and you never got a lift. Nobody gave you a ride. <laughs> no. Oh yeah. Well, that's the most. Well, that's the most important thing. The whole thing was done on foot. So, um, yeah, man, it, it, it was quite the experience. One of the things that happened was I started off a little too strong. I uh, I had trained six months, you know, to get my fitness up to spec, but then on the first day, as soon as I, um, I, I think I was a bit overzealous. I banged out almost a marathon the first day. Uh, I ended up in Daly City. Wow. The first stop. Yeah, and I slept. Beside Highway 280, uh, between Highway 280 and the and an off ramp, and uh, um, yeah, the next day I was kind of like, oh, my legs are a little sore than I thought, you know. Uh, maybe I should slow down, but of course, young and impetuous and uh, excited <laughs> by the amount of media attention it was getting, I pushed on too hard, and before I knew it, I had massive problems with my shins. Oh, really? And, yeah, and that kind of laid me up for a few days. Um. Well, and so, so what's that? So you're, you're, you've, you know, you've injured yourself essentially. So that's slowed your progress and you still can't go inside. You can't seek relief really in terms of getting out of the elements and trying to have somebody take care of you. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's it. What, it, what actually happened was it, it was all very uh, enlightening really. So the second morning after sleeping one night beside highway 280 in Daly city, next to, I think it was a 24-hour fitness. Uh, I woke up and I was doing a piece of the camera. At that point, I had a cameraman uh, following in a follow car. And uh, I turned my head a little too swiftly and I nearly took my eye out with a twig. So oh. before I, yeah, great. Before I let it sit for, you know, I, I eventually found the twig later that evening. It had gone so deep and uh, so far behind my eye oh. that, uh, that it didn't show itself for about eight hours. Uh, but it eventually showed itself in a subway and uh, in a subway when I was getting a sandwich later that day and uh, I thought okay I take it out please God it doesn't get infected next morning I wake up and of course it was infected I couldn't open the eye and I went to urgent care and mm. uh, it, it be, what, what actually transpired was I got a real insight into you know what happens when you get sick when you have no support system and no shelter and no place to go so my shins were sore and uh, my eye is closed over. I walk into urgent care, and I have no health insurance because, well, I'm uh, a poor Irish immigrant. Let's say. <laughs> you're so, <laughs> you're a comedian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, my wages are laughter. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, man. So, lone, the beauty was though, because I was doing it for a charity. I found these wonderful people. This uh, a nurse and a doctor both took care of me. Uh, well, I haven't got the bill yet, so I think it's, it's completely free. And uh, <laughs> they gave me some antibiotic eye drops to take with me on the road and a fake cornea or a lens that would act as a fake cornea because I had lost 30% of my... Oh. Uh, a 30, 30% corneal abrasion, which is basically... You're in eye-losing territory. And, and, Holy and, cow. Yeah. So it really was something special to start off. For first 48 hours, twig to the eye, almost lose the eyesight, and now I got... 500 miles to go. Wow, that two, was two, two days homeless and you're <laughs> already down. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was literally, do you know what, what happened though? That made, that 
that was the making and breaking of people's uh, interest in the series. So, because mm. uh, I guess it is, it was a, a daily series. I uploaded about three one-minute videos a day to Instagram, and because of the the personal nature of the the vlog, and uh, I wasn't holding anything back. I was trying to show everything warts and all. People got very interested, and um, they started to want. Uh, the best for me and to take care of me and I realized oh this is a perfect medium for which so if people want to help me and reach out and help Frank Cronin I'll let them do that and that will be a way for me to illustrate that strangers can help strangers and if they can help me they can help the homeless hmm. so before I knew it I had strangers helping me from all over the world sending me sandwiches when I got out of the hospital a complete stranger from I don't know where sent <laughs> sent me burgers and a drink, you know, <laughs> uh, via, Uber, via Uber Eats. It became this interactive, let's help Frank survive and get to San Francisco. And before I knew it, I had, I, I started to experience, like, levels of kindness and uh, care and empathy and compassion that I hadn't experienced in years, you know. Mm. I, I'd bec I had put myself in a vulnerable position, and I realized, despite what the media would say, is that the world is a really beautiful, caring place, and we're not divided, we're actually... We're united to try and make the world a better place, and if we see someone suffering, we want to help them. So this became the the crux of the documentary, which you know, hopefully will come out well. It's basically that the world is a beautiful place, and we can help strangers, and uh, kindness and empathy are in abundance, and it's an untapped resource that we can share. You know. Yeah, yeah. Now you said you had a cameraman with you the first couple of days. When did when did that end, or did he keep on? Well, it was it was a little tough because um, he was sleeping in his car, and every time I I didn't want to slow down, you know. Yeah. Because when you when you slow down, you start your muscles start to seize up, and I my initial plan was to do the whole thing in like under twenty days. So I thought I could either do a marathon a day, mm. get to L.A. and uh, you know the fastest walk ever, you know, or whatever. But. Um, yeah, so the, he, I think he went home just before Christmas, maybe the 23rd, but I would see him in the morning and the evening. So in the morning, we would try and film a piece, the camera, and uh, then if I had a comedy show, like say at the Punchline or the San Jose Improv, where people were letting me jump in, jump in on their comedy shows, then he would turn up and and uh, record. Oh, okay. That was, that was one other element of it. So... Um, on the first night, I did the San Francisco punchline, and then on to Daly City to sleep beside the highway. Yeah. And then about three days later, when I got to San Jose, uh, Craig Shoemaker let me jump up and uh, do ten minutes on his show. So sure, Craig's a great guy. He's been a been on the show. I've known him for years, and uh, he's exactly the kind of guy that would have opened the stage to you, I'm sure. Yeah, smart guy, and and it, you know. When you start doing things in a certain manner, people who like to do things in a certain manner come out. So we had this great conversation of how uh, uh, an individual, like the goal in life is to find out how you can be of service to the world as opposed to how you can serve yourself. And, and uh, I haven't, I didn't get to talk to him much more than maybe 20 minutes uh, mm -hmm. after the show. But yeah, I look forward to kind of crossing paths with him again because we're both on that same wavelength of like, well, you know, what can you bring to the world? Because... Uh, Lo and behold, being selfless is actually almost selfish because you get way more in return when you're selfless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so just let's uh, backtrack a bit uh, in terms of, you know, getting yourself 
in a condition to do this sort of a, a, an endeavor. Um, I know in your background that you were in the Irish Army for a while. Yeah, the legal one, relax. For what? The legal one. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the legal one. Uh, and, and what did you do? In, I mean, how long were you in for? Um, I believe I was in there for six or seven years, and uh, that was mainly in the Air Corps mm -hmm. uh, as a, a fireman. And then I did uh, a tour of Liberia, West Africa in 2005 with the United Nations Peace Enforcement Mission as part of the Quick Reaction Force. So we were out there in the jungles and uh, we actually, the coolest thing about that trip was we reconnoitered the, the land route for Charles Taylor, the dictator, to be moved. But uh, he, ended up being, he ended up being flown out. But that was kind <laughs> of a nice little, uh, yeah, we, we just wasted a lot of time and gas, but it felt pretty good. <laughs> and um, yeah, and then I retired. I when I got back from Africa, uh, they promoted me. They gave me. They made me a lieutenant. And then uh, I realized that that wasn't for me. And I, I had this inkling to do more in the arts. So I pursued that and, and retired at, uh, after seven years. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a lot of staying staying power, it seems. Uh, and then you did a stint uh, a few years ago where you went back to school and you'd been here and then you'd gone back to school in Ireland and you lived in a tent for a semester. Yeah. So after the army, you know, um, you, when you're in the army, if you play your cards right, and especially if you go overseas, you can, you can, and you're single, you can save up a little bit of money. We call it danger money, you know, when you go overseas <laughs> with the army. So you get this, you get like double pay because there's a risk involved. So I left the army with a little bit of money, and uh, my friend had just married a Mexican girl. So we opened some, we opened a restaurant in, in Mexico. You know, <laughs> just like you know, next natural step after leaving the army. Of course. So, yeah, and that went well. So we opened another one, and then it was like five or six years there, and I and I, I still hadn't finished the degree, and my mum was concerned that I would need this degree, and uh, I don't like leaving things unfinished. So I I went back to university, but all my money was tied up in this bar and this restaurant in uh, Mexico, which I, I, I thought I was kind of cool with business, but I was kind of stupid. I had all my cash <laughs> in, in, in this business, and I had no cash flow, so I didn't have the money for rent. So mm. I thought, oh, I'll, I like making videos. I like a challenge. I'm kind of trained to be outdoors. I'll live in a tent for my final year of university. So that's what I did, and it became kind of like a, a cool thing that ended up, you know, five years later, I guess, um, Kind of propelling me in this direction let's have an outdoor adventure and uh and show people that you can kind of mess with the matrix you know yeah absolutely yeah. and so yeah. uh you certainly were able to prepare yourself from a mindset and also sounded physically although like you said you may have pushed yourself too hard early on yeah so yeah this uh, i did the training for this was pretty much a step counter on my on my cell phone so i had an app that would count my steps and I would up it every 2,000 steps, you know, every second day. So by the time I started, I was already doing 20 miles um, comfortably a day. Um, but what I didn't factor in is um, I, I think I was, I think when you're sleeping at home and you're not sleeping out, your body obviously recovers a lot better. So by the fifth day into the walk, despite all my training, I wasn't getting enough rest or nutrition. So my body broke down or whatever it was, and I got a massive knot in my front right shin, which I thought was shin splints, which is a real killer. That means game over. But yeah. uh, 
I was able to roll it out over about four days, and uh, and lo and behold, back to normal again. So, other than uh, hamburgers from strangers, what other things did you do for nutrition on this road? Obviously, you didn't carry a whole lot of food with you. No, well, that, that's that's an interesting thing, and it's a very one of the more common questions is like, you know, well, where did you eat? Where did you stop? And uh, if you think about walking from San Francisco all the way to LA, you're you're never more than worst case scenario 40 miles from a gas station <laughs> that's you <know>? true <laughs> so so you do i found myself eating a lot of stuff in gas stations or if i was heading over mountains or using railway tracks uh, as shortcuts i would i would look at my satellite navigation on my phone uh, i had two different apps running just for you know redundancy to make sure i was okay and then i would i would check the mileage between locations and then if it was 10 miles i'd take two liters of water and a, a sandwich just in case mm. and if it was 20 or 30 miles then i'd you know take i'd eat as much as i could <laughs> take take on as much water as i could take another two liters i'd try and see if there was a river you know running by worst case scenario up the mountains i can refill my water bottle in a river and then uh i kind of like get myself prepared mentally okay so you're not going to see another human for 48 hours but you're going to cut 30 miles off your you know track yeah. if you take the railroad and then i would have these wonderful moments up in the mountains of just like absolute serenity and solitude and uh, and uh, knowing that you're away from everybody is a beautiful magical experience you know yeah, yeah. And you see bridges yeah. you see bridges up there as well that you know no one has walked on in like in uh, you know years probably and you're there on this big rusty bridge reading the sign like it was made in 1914 and you know you're probably one of 100 people to ever walk across it feels great you know these weird kind of moments where you feel like you're out on the cusp and uh but all you're really doing is you know you're just being an idiot walking through the mountains (laughs) did you you run into other people that were just either walking or camping or just out there away from everyone else yeah, so there's like two different worlds in one um, in terms of people living out. Uh, I've kind of broken it down to uh, there's people who are living out, and uh, there's people who are living out by choice, and they have their mental health, and they aren't struggling with any um, addiction. And some people are out there, you know, especially say Ventura or along the coastline you might have some surfers who are really living in their tents in some bushes with their surfboard beside them and then there's the people who are complete who who have a lack of clarity mm. uh, and they're not really present or they may have a, a mental or physical um, affliction or they may have an addiction and they're the people who really need the help and they're who I was doing the walk for so uh, I met on the walk I met uh, some very interesting people i guess let's just see one 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 guy was a one guy who i walked uh about 15 miles one night near salinas was uh an ex-con who had uh an ex-convict who had got out of prison about five years earlier and found it very hard to reintegrate back into society he had stolen a, a police car <laughs> which the video which the, the video is pretty cool actually <laughs> uh, that'll go in the documentary uh, he gave me permission to like you know, put it out there. But he was able to give me some direction about, like, uh, finding safe spots to sleep and what to look out for on the ground. And uh, uh, he also gave me some indication of uh, what to watch out for when dealing with people in terms of 
and um, watching out for predators, mm. uh, predator types, which will look at you as if they're an animal sizing up prey. And he gave me the full rundown and uh, embodiment of that so that I could be aware of that. You know? And, did, and, and uh, did you run into people like that? Well, funny, funny enough, I think, I think he may have been one of those people. <laughs> oh, interesting. And, uh, I think he was playing inside chess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure. But there was a. I didn't bump into anyone like that in particular. I bumped into a lot of people who were st- struggling uh, on many different levels uh, in terms of their health. So, some with uh, drug addiction, which I think it, the prevalence is 34 percent in the st- in the states in, in California for people who are living out who are struggling with a, a, an addiction is 34, 37 uh, percent, and there's a lot of people with opioid addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a lot of people walking around late at night, as we know, on methamphetamine. And uh, one of the things that came up in conversations with these guys was um, a lot of the time when they started out in the streets, they weren't addicted to meth. But they found it very stressful, and I found it too, very stressful sleeping in built-up areas. Uh, so that they tried to escape by using drugs, and then before they knew it, they were addicted. Hmm. And by being by being on meth, you can stay up all night, be alert, and then sleep when it's safer during the day. And then you won't be bothered by the police if you're up and about moving, you know? Yeah. Um, now, I know from so, uh, seeing some of your, uh, your uh, Instagram videos and whatnot that uh, you got roused by the cops a few times. What were those experiences like? <laughs> Yeah, man. I mean, I I guess I was pulled over at walking speed about five times. Um, <laughs> straight straight up, I had my experiences with the police were uh, very much like my experiences in Ireland. You know, um, just uh, it's a tense moment. Uh, you show your respect, put your hands in the air, and uh, you explain exactly what you're doing as quickly as you can, and uh, and then the tension dissipates, and then they they were on side pretty much to help me on my way there was one night they put they i say pulled me over they they stopped me <laughs> and uh yeah i got it i got the whole uh stop on camera which will go into the documentary it was pretty sweet and then by the end of that they um they were actually helping me they said hey look this part of the highway because we control this this section here you can hop down there over that bridge walk along there along here and sneak in there and then you'll you'll cut about five miles off your journey, and uh, because there's no boot road beside it, it's legal. And I was like, oh, brilliant! So I had the cops on side all of a sudden. <laughs> and uh, another time coming <laughs> just after Santa Barbara, man, I didn't know that mountain lions were a real thing in California. Like I knew they existed, but I didn't think it was something that I would really have to consider. So mm. uh, just coming into Santa Barbara or north of Santa Barbara, um. Uh, I was pulled over again by the cops, and they said, hey, just so you know, like, uh, you know, it's coming up to 1 a.m., and you're out in the street, and you're thinking of going over those mountains. And they go, yeah, well, that's not, not a good idea. We've had a lot of mountain lion sightings. So they, to- they, gave me, they told me to, you know, just lie down at the side of the road, which seemed kind of silly, because if I was walking, at least I was a moving target. Now they were just telling me to stay still, like, you know, like a mountain lion buffet. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's funny. Um, so as you're making your way through this, uh, what sounds like a very arduous journey, um, you are uh, at the same time uh, a comedian, 
right? So how much of this yeah. is going into the the boiler that's going to eventually emerge as material? Well, Mark, you know yourself, you know, you kind of talk it out with friends and before you know it, you're finding punchlines that were just under the surface. So every, every bit of radio I do and every interview that I have the privilege of doing like this, I find little things when I listen back. And uh, I would say I'll try and do a whole show based around it because I think I've got something to share. I think there's some depth to it, you know, and uh, there's a lot of tension and sadness in there and there's nothing like tension and sadness uh, to, oh, sorry, sadness and uh, despair to create tension and then once you can pierce that tension there's often a lot of relief and uh, laughter you know we'll get into the second half of my interview with Frank Cronin right after this unimportant message from one of our pretend sponsors hello friends Bill Haywatt here with some awesome news from the good folk at Henderson's Pants they are finally all aboard the recycling bandwagon That's right. You know, it took a while, but all of your cards, letters, and court injunctions finally caught the attention of old man Henderson, and he's vowed to give up his resource-gobbling habit the same way he puts on his new Henderson scavenger slacks, one leg at a time. The material for these new dress pants is as varied as there are days in a year. That's because Henderson's dumpster-diving legions are out there right now, rag-picking every scrap of discarded cloth they can find, whether it's denim, corduroys, burlap, hemp, cotton, twill, or even in some cases, aluminum foil. They're popping it into their collection sacks and scurrying back to Henderson's main factory in Lenexa, Kansas. Once their Henderson's Pantscateers work their magic and combine all that cloth into pairs and pairs of trousery wonder. Uh, I'm sorry, Pairs and pairs of trouser wondery. That's better. Originally designed for middle-aged court jesters, professional golfers, and your Uncle Ned. Henderson scavenger slacks are going to be all the rage if the company can ever afford to once again gas up their fleet of delivery trucks. That's Henderson's makers of buckled swashes and jerkin' gherkins since 1347. And now back to Succotash. I think I can. I think I can show people something. I think I can, in a weird way, maybe educate myself and educate other people by talking about it. And um, you know, I learned a lot along the way, man. You know, it, it's weird when you're when you're alone and in solitude. Uh, I'm sure you know this, and anyone who's kind of walked the earth a bit, it's like uh, things start to speak to you uh, in terms of. <laughs> I don't. You know, get too too profound, but you you kind of find yourself on the road. You know, you start to discover exactly who you are when you're not constantly being picked at and pulled at by other people. You know, you start to understand. Oh, this is how I feel about the world. This is my point of view about the world. And um, one one thing that I discovered, uh, or at least I'm investigating. You know, with my thoughts as I walk around trying to think about what's important in life is that there's like a moral responsibility to live a good life you know and mm-hmm. to, to be a good person and it's not just it's not just for like your your own sake or your it, it, it's because we're all so interlinked you know especially now we put this podcast out and maybe someone listens to it and decides to go for a walk and you know raise some money for a charity it's like um, 
the repercussions of living a bad life or not your best life are way uh, they're way more <laughs> way stronger than they ever were before so I'm uh, I've gone from kind of being flippant about you know yeah I'll do this I'll do that to well what's the best use of my time on this planet while I'm here for the next 50 years and can I actually instigate some real change for the better and uh, can I be of use instead of just like cracking silly jokes can I can I be a better human? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I got all that from walking the train tracks and trying to dodge mountain lions. Well, you know, it's funny because I've uh, I've done a number of uh, these vision quests with some Native American friends of mine um, where you just go out into the woods or wherever they're holding these uh, these times for like three or four days and you're by yourself. You go out with a small group of people, but then you're by yourself for three or four days. And uh, being in that isolation really does, as you're talking about, does kind of open your eyes as to the kind of person you are, right? Um, yeah. And it's amazing how many people, you know, you can tell that sort of an experience to. And I didn't do this 500-mile-long walk that you did. Um, but just the idea of being alone for four days terrifies people. The, the idea that they, you know, get away from the idea that maybe a mountain lion will show up at your tent. <laughs> But the idea that you're just by yourself and people go, how did you do that? It, it's just we're so yeah. surrounded and inundated by media and people and all this stuff that it's amazing how just a few days of isolation can suddenly open your eyes. Absolutely, Mark. And here's a funny thing. What is it that what it must be incredibly powerful, whatever it is, whatever that energy or whatever that thing is that's running along parallel to us, that's right there, right now, beside every single one of us. It must be incredible if we have to distract ourselves 24-7 rather than look at it and yeah. be alone with it. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I do. Whatever it is, some people probably call it God, a higher power, or whatever. But just to sit alone in nature as a human is not kooky. That's not crazy. That's the only thing that's actually not neurosis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Isn't that crazy? And we're so scared of it, man. We have to drink coffee, smoke cigarettes, <laughs> drink beer, anything but sit with it. Because yeah. Because it's so powerful. Oh, and yeah. We're, we're afraid to be, we're afraid to take on the responsibility of what it would be to be completely in line with that energy. That's interesting. That's uh, my thought. I got that out there. I don't know if it's true, but I'm working on that thought. <laughs> no, I think there's definitely something to it. Um, these experiences I had, you you would fast for your time out there. So there was no distraction in terms wow. of eating or drinking or anything else. You know, you'd, you'd have like, you know, you could maybe have like a cup of tea or something, but that was about it. Um, so, and yeah. It's, how, how funny is that, Mark, that, that they've been doing that for generations and thousands of years? People... You know, we like to kind of think of, ah, oh, yeah, it's religion. Or, you know, not not everyone. Some people are religious, but it's like, ah, it's silly. You know, don't mind that. We have science now. It's like, yes, but for thousands of years all over the world, people who don't know each other have spent time alone in the mountains fasting and paying attention to just nature. Yeah. Like, we're, like, we're really missing something. We're caught up in a rat race that pulls us away from exactly what we are, our very being. And we need to be careful about that. <laughs> yeah. Because it's, it's, it's so cool, man, that that exists. And it's, it's a choice. It's like three days of in the mountains with fasting away from an, a, a moment of enlightenment that will last your whole life, you know? Uh, very much so. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, what was, uh, were, were there any uh, moments that really stand out in your mind, whether it was a sunrise or somebody you ran into or something else that kind of you think you'll always carry with you? Yeah, man, I was starting to have, uh, I think it was day five. I was I was supposed to have a show with Craig Shoemaker, or at least jump in on his show that night at the San Jose Improv. And that morning I had woken up after about four hours sleep in very, very cold, misty uh, NorCal weather. And I had slept, I had hopped a fence into the back of a dentist's office where I was getting my teeth checked out for the documentary. Mm. Um, and I wasn't feeling good mentally or physically. I was sleep deprived. And I I was thinking I had bitten off more than I could chew. And I was trying to run a production and trying to create, a, you know, a documentary, a pilot or a sizzle or some ambitious thing in my head that was going to go on and, you know, change the world and blah, 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 blah. So I'm kind of falling apart at the seams. And I walk out of the dentist after we film that segment. And I'm just like, man, what am I doing? It's day five and I'm already falling apart mentally and physically. And then... I meet this guy called Andrew, who is just a guy who's living no no uh, no drama here in a ditch under a piece of plastic. But he has a shopping cart, and on that shopping cart, he has a gas stove that he's he's figured out. He's he's thrown together, kind mm. of uh, fixed up, and he just he sees. I didn't see him until he saw me. He just goes, "Hey, let me cook you breakfast or whatever." Let wow. me cook you a sausage. This is homeless guy. I'm out there trying to do a documentary on homelessness and trying to raise money for the homeless. And this man who is has nothing is offering to cook me breakfast. And we, uh, yeah, dude, I just, I just, I just absorbed his goodness, man. Like you know, he had a few things going on, you know, that you could tell he wasn't his best self. Yeah. But the compassion and empathy, he saw me, he saw I needed something, and he was willing to share the little he had. And that that was the turning point in the whole thing. I realized, oh, it's not about me. It's not about me running or getting from San Francisco to L.A. and uh, being this cool guy. who just It's about the people I meet along the way and compassion and empathy. And that's when it changed. And that's when everybody online started getting on board hmm. after that day. Beautiful. Well, that's something, isn't it? Yeah, man, I'll never forget that, dude. If anyone is ever in San Jose and they meet Andrew, or they uh, just or give they, him a big hope. Or if they need a sausage. Yeah, yeah, dude. Yeah, he cooks <laughs> a mean sausage, man. Yeah, man, and, then, and that, that, was, that was also a day, because, you know, you, you think you're kind of, well, I, you know, I thought I was always kind of open-minded and cool, and here I am doing this thing. But we all have these pre-programmed ideas in our heads from whatever experiences we've had. But that interaction pulled back the last little filter and let my guard uh, so whenever I met anybody else then I was aware that they it wasn't me bringing them something it was me when talking to them they were helping me better understand the world Hmm. and that that was like when my ego got out of the way a little bit yeah Uh, it was interesting uh, as your journey was going on, seeing the people that were sort of retweeting your stuff and and rooting you on. Uh, and I know one of the people you were trying to get the attention of was uh, Ellen DeGeneres. And were you ever successful in in getting a hold of her? Well, actually, I did the pre-interview there two days ago, so that's that may or may not happen. The, the goal there is uh, 
I, yeah, I was talking to a producer for 30 minutes. It felt like it went great, but I, I guess you're kind of auditioning. You're up against uh, Martin Scorsese or, or <laughs> Jennifer Aniston. So, like, if I, if I can pop this, if I beat those, I'm delighted. The goal to get on there was um, she's got a massive platform, man. And when, when you realize, when, when you're exposed in close quarters and trying to let it permeate you, uh, I feel like I have a message to share, which is just, you know, something that could be dissipated really well from her huge platform as, as well. She's the kind of lady that kind of would quadruple down. If you raise 20,000, which we did, she might say, well, guess what? We're going to give the charity a hundred thousand. So it's like a, it's like the perfect finish would be to get on Ellen and her to, you know, drop a few hundred thousand on the charity, you know? Something yeah, like that. That, that would be great. Well, maybe she'll <laughs> listen to, uh, to, to us here on Succotash and who knows, uh, <laughs> I, I knew her a long time ago, and uh, I I don't know that she would listen to our show. But let's say she does. I wouldn't put it past her. It's a great show. Is she? Were you guys doing stand up together? Uh, I was producing stand up. She was doing shows. Um, but we became friends, and we used to hang out. I would. Uh, there was always uh, when we were, I used to hang out at the Improv in in L.A. You know, in West Hollywood. Yeah. And she lived like two blocks away, and she would come and do sets, and then for a while there was a fear that there were people mugging customers in the parking lot. So I'd walk her home, <laughs> but well, uh, you were, you were, you were thick as thieves, as they say, you guys were close. Oh yeah. Cool. I actually was, uh, I got to go with her, uh, backstage at, uh, one of her tonight, early tonight show appearances, uh, along with her brother and, uh, another comedian, Jake Johansson. Well, if I, if, if it works out, man, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll definitely mention that. I know you, cause that's a, that's a cool thing, man. To meet people before they uh, they pop, you know, and uh, that's a, that's it's the further up the food chain I think you get in showbiz, uh, the harder it is to decipher uh, where people are coming from energetically. So I think, don't if I meet her, I'll definitely mention, hey, my friend Mark. Uh, yeah, you, yeah, you, before you were doing, eh. yeah, no, she'll. I'm sure she'll remember. She's she's always a great person, and uh, she, you know she's had such great success, and she really deserves it. So, I just hope that she shines some light on you because I think this cause you've uh, marched literally yourself into is so worthwhile um, that it certainly bears some uh, uh, attention from people that can that can truly help bring even more attention uh, from the public at large to it. Thanks, man. And the message is pretty simple. It's not it's not like any individual has to take on the whole burden and fix it themselves. It's my my uh, what I figured out on this walk, or at least I think I figured out is it's okay to do a little try and make it habitual and a smile, some eye contact and some conversation is enough. It's enough because what I found out there on the road as I became more and more disheveled, say week two, week three. Beard starts growing in, clothes are dirty, there's mud on the jeans, there's mud on the shoes, or not on the jeans, on the trousers. And you start to look a little uh, fragile behind the eyes, you know, and you're not sleeping well, and your face is kind of disintegrating before you. Uh, you start you start to be become one of the out-group, and you start to be looked at as other, other than, and then, then you stop being looked at at all, hmm. and you become almost invisible. And there's... A, I, I did a little psychology in college, and one of the lines that stuck out to me was, uh, you only truly know who you are by, or a lot of people decipher and figure out who they are based on how other people treat them. Mm. And as, as, you, as people start treating you as invisible or less than, it's, it's impossible, man. And I had all the support in the world, 
but it's impossible for your self-esteem and your sense of self not to take a beating. And I had, I was getting a hundred thousand million billion likes and, and, and messages and you can do it and oh, this is great and all that. And inside all of that, inside all of that love, because I wasn't getting eye contact, because nobody was saying you're worth it and because no one was looking at me in any way, shape or form. And I'm not only not looking at me, but looking away and making sure that their kids didn't look at me. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's like there's nothing more... I haven't experienced anything as it's, it's almost an existential crisis. You can't even, it's like, you feel like you don't exist. Mm. And, uh, you know, I was only scratching the surface of it. So imagine long term, you're not getting any hugs. No one is looking at you and your mental health is slowly slipping away. Yeah. And what I, what I found was that, like week three, it was hard for me to ask for directions. I found it hard to, I stopped trying to get into certain buildings, like to charge my phone, because I would just stick to Starbucks or something generic, because I, I didn't want to be told no. Hmm. Uh, and when you have your backpack on your back, it's like people just see you coming and you can, you can sense, even if they're doing their best, you can sense that they don't want you in their domain. And uh, so my message, here's the message, a little bit of eye contact, a little bit of a smile, Maybe a few dollars to a charity who knows how to use your money well, and uh, and let's just be careful about how we frame people who are living out in our minds. When we see someone, just be aware of how we treat them. And in that first interaction, when you're walking by someone, do you acknowledge their existence? Do you make contact, eye contact? Do you smile? Do you take a moment to talk to them so that they know they're still human? That's all. You know. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's great. So important. Um, let me just jump to the the end of your journey ends at Dynasty Typewriter in Los oh, yeah. Angeles, right? So you're literally just sort of getting off the road and getting on stage. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, it was cool coming in. So coming into LA, I had a few stops along the way. I had the Malibu Playhouse, and then uh, I got to jump on a little TV down near El Segundo near the airport. So I was verbally pretty. Uh, ready to go but I was completely exhausted and kind of dead on my feet but I had you know pushed this final show okay I'm going to walk in there go on stage with some slides and tell the story and uh, Jeff Garland was going to show up he had agreed to show up and he did a set up top he had been encouraging me via text the whole way and actually dropped $5,000 on the charity because he's a sweet dude <laughs> nice. and I'd never met him before he's just like in a, he's all for it you know uh, Preacher Lawson from America's Got Talent was on the show. Moses Storm from Conan was hosting. So it was this beautiful, talented, uh, hotbed of talent, and they're all doing comedy day in, day out, and ready to go. And then there's little me, weary, <laughs> uh, with very few jokes formed and uh, a slideshow. And uh, yeah, man, we had uh, like about a hundred people there, and um, it was a it was a beautiful thing, man, because. People embraced the comedy of Jeff Garland, Preacher, and Moses, and then there was uh, the slideshow, which allowed us to kind of slip into a little bit more understanding of the journey and uh, how we can kind of better serve our weakest citizens. I think, and I, I think it worked out pretty good, you know. Wow, that's amazing! And Just amazing. Yeah, yeah, and we handed over the check, dude, which is probably the biggest thing. I've never handed over a big check to anyone, and we handed over twenty thousand dollars that night to the homeless healthcare Los Angeles charity. That's amazing. So, 
Yeah, it was it was a teary moment. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, so if people want to reach out and help, again, it's uh, Homeless Healthcare Los Angeles, HHCLA, in social media? Yeah, HHCLA.org, and uh, even if you don't know what to do with your money, they do, and they'll do it well. So that's great. That's cool. And how do people get a hold of you? I mean, you're all over social media. You're uh, you're easy to find. But uh, what do people look for when they want to get a hold of Frank Cronin? Yeah, if you put in Francis Cronin duck into the internet anywhere, F or A N C I S C R O N I N, you'll find me. I'm still at that level where I have to spell my name, so. <laughs> but I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will. I will have linkages to uh, all the places I know where to find you, Frank. Uh, nice. On our succotash dot sh- uh, dot com show dot com website. Yeah. And Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, I uh, I should be in L.A. Uh, before too long. So let's uh, let's get together and uh, catch up in person. That would be a pleasure. And Mark, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate you using your platform to get the word out. So. Uh, it's always Great. my pleasure. Glad you arrived safe and sound in your destin- at your destination. And uh, <laughs> I look curious to see what sort of reverberations uh, your adventure is going to have in the future. Yeah, same here, man. I think, I think there's more to do, uh, but I've, I've figured out a few things about how to do it. So that's the main thing. Excellent. Well, Frank, thanks again uh, so much and uh, continued uh, success as you find your other ways to get the attention of show business. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that was a little, you know, that was a, that definitely got some attention. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a part of me that after that walk, I don't, I got enough attention. I'm more interested in what can I bring uh, of value and depth to the world because uh, we're only here a short time may as well do something a, a, a bit bigger than ourselves and also when you do things that are bigger than yourself um, you know people pay attention you can't really hide from it you know yeah. if you're doing anything of value to the world no matter how hard you try uh, the world will come after you and try and hold you up so, uh, I don't know man you can't win it's very hard to <laughs> <laughs> to do something of value and and uh, and hide out, you know. I got a taste of uh, a little too much attention for my liking, you know. Interesting. Uh, well, it sounds like uh, like you've learned some valuable lessons, and I think you've helped te- teach a few along the way too, which is uh, kind of a great formula. Yeah. Thanks, dude. All right, Frank. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. Thank you. Thank Bye. you, man. Bye. Well, quite an amazing journey friend Frank was on, right? I was so captivated by his story that I realized afterwards there were a few questions that I thought of that I forgot to ask. So I texted him and got some responses back. Like, where did he go to the bathroom? You know, number two, he texted back, quote, in the cities I availed myself of Starbucks new relaxed restroom policy or anywhere else that would have me. I had a lovely shower at a truck stop one day uh, off of the 101, smiley face. In the wilderness, uh, wherever there is no mountain lions, one thing is to be eaten, another to be eaten with your pants down, unquote. I also asked him what his thoughts and feelings uh, were when he was finally able to get into his own bed that first night. After finishing this amazing trek, he texted, quote, I had some feelings of guilt about being safe and warm, knowing all the people I met were still out there, unquote. 
And then finally I asked him where, what his parents back in Ireland thought about his crazy adventure. He hit me back with, quote, my parents enjoyed the journey. They loved the outdoors and adventure. They took pride in the fact that it was for a great cause, and they enjoyed following me on satellite tracking via my website. They spent a lot of time suggesting routes, <laughs> unquote. Once again, thanks for sharing your experience with us, Frank. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Glowpunk, G-L-O-W-P-U-N-K. You can also still donate to his Rough Set GoFundMe page, and the link to that is up on our SuccotashShow.com page, or you can go directly to the folks that he's been giving his money to, Homeless Healthcare Los Angeles, and their URL is hhcla.org. And again, there's a link to that at SuccotashShow.com. Dot com. And now this. This episode of Succotash is sponsored in part by TrumpPoetry.com, a chronological ode to a fake muse. Enjoy a rhyming spin on the news of the day every day, as well as over 500 archived daily verses thoroughly covering the White House, America, and the world with a sticky caramel coating that's impossible to remove. That's TRUMPoetry.com. Everything you need to know in rhyming couplets. Trump Poetry. Here are a couple of short, very short, poems to tide you over until you can get to TrumpPoetry.com yourself. This one is from January 4th of this year. It's poem number 747. His staff is a hemorrhaging mess. The government's shut, more or less. The market has fallen. Soon Mueller comes calling. And this he calls, quote, too much success, unquote. And the second poem is from January 21st, also of this year, number 730. There once was a MAGA hat teen. To an elder vet he appeared mean. One's cause to get ired by what had transpired depends on what footage was seen. All right, that about does it for Succotash Chats Epi 187. I want to thank our special guest, Frank Cronin. And I encourage you to hop over to our home site at SuccotashShow.com and click on the various links to Frank, his story, and Homeless Healthcare Los Angeles, too. If you want to send big congrats to our host Tyson and his wife Laura on the birth of their son Jareth, you may reach out to him via Twitter at RevT23 or send an email to him at, at Tyson at SuccotashShow.com. And remember that T-Man will be back here in the big chair before you know it. Until then, you're stuck with me. So I hope that's all right. In the meantime, please remember, for all the people you know, to pass the suck-tash. Goodbye. You've been listening to Suckatash Chats, the comedy soundcast soundcast with your substitute host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants, TrumpPoetry.com, and... Imagine your company's name right here. Yes, find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on iHeartRadio, on YouTube, on SoundCloud, and on... <laughs> the Laughable App. You can hear us streaming and like us on on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Email us at marc at or call into the Suckatash Skype line at 
our toll call number, 818-921-7212. Production of Succotash is overseen by Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, the home of the hit. Our regular host is Tyson Saner. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durgis. That's me. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the succotash. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.